joyous opportunity. Thank you for all of the hope that we can have because of the love that you have for us in your son that you displayed for us most clearly in his sacrifice. Lord, this world is yours. We are yours. And you have done a great and mighty thing to redeem a people for yourself and are in due process, Lord, of redeeming this entire world and reconciling it all to yourself. So, Lord, as we participate in this worship service this morning and offer our hearts to you, as we listen, Lord, we ask, we ask desperately and out of our own weakness for your aid in conforming our hearts to your heart and filling us with the righteousness that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So today, what I want to talk to you about is sin. More specifically, I want to talk about the sin of God's people. God has done a great and glorious thing by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that our sins may be pardoned. But that doesn't change the nature of sin. It drastically reduces the consequence of sin but it does not at all lessen the offense of our sin. If anything, the grace of God in Jesus Christ makes our sin more detestable and more cringeworthy. So today we're going to consider the sin of God's people, its severity and its consequence through the lens of the book of Ezra. Now, my focus is going to be on Ezra chapter 9, but before we get there, I just want to give you some background on the story so that you're clear on where we are, both in the text and in history. So because of sin and persistent idolatry, God had brought the nation of Babylon in against his people Israel to destroy them, to break down their cities, to burn the temple, and to carry the people off into exile. The book of Ezra starts with King Cyrus of Persia, the next nation that came in that God used to defeat Babylon. This king of Persia, Cyrus, allows the Jews to return to their homeland, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Now, the returning exiles who are led by a man named Zerubbabel begin to build the temple but are opposed by enemies from other nations, the nations that were surrounding them. But God, by his sovereign power, gives them the opportunity, the desire, and the strength to continue that work. Ezra himself comes into the story about 60 years after the completion of the temple, which is chapter 7 in the book that bears his name. Ezra is a man who's descended from Aaron, Aaron who was the first high priest of the people of Israel. So Ezra himself is a priest to God by blood descent. And he served in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes. He was likely some kind of official over Jewish religious matters under the supervision of the king. He's described in Verse 6 of chapter 7, as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. In verse 12, as the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Verse 10 of chapter 7 says that Ezra set his heart 
to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra's desire was to return the worship of God according to the word of God to the people of God. And though the Jews had been allowed to return to their nation, they were not a free and sovereign people. They were a territory under control of the empire. So in order for Ezra to carry out this good desire, he had to ask the king's permission. And the king granted it. Not only did he grant permission, but he gave ridiculous amounts of support to this effort. Rams, lambs, grain for sacrifices, silver, gold, wheat, wine, and oil. Whatever was needed for the worship of Yahweh, Artaxerxes was happy to give it to Ezra and the people that they might do that. Artaxerxes even authorized Ezra to appoint judges and court officers to enforce the law of God among the Jewish people also along with his own law. Artaxerxes himself was not a, a Jew or, or a God-fearer in the sense of the Israelites, but he was happy to throw some money that way to appease this other God that might bring some harm to his people. So Ezra, the faithful man of God, takes the gifts, takes his letters of authorization, and he heads to Jerusalem, bringing with him a company of Jews, about 1,900 in total. And he gets to Jerusalem, he delivers the goods to the priests, and there, the people have this awesome, wonderful worship service. They sacrifice 12 bulls, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats. So you could say that things were looking up for Jerusalem at this point. The grace of the Lord is obviously upon them. This is a story of the spiritual rebirth of the nation. And then we get to chapter 9. Chapter 9 picks up a few months after Ezra's initial arrival, after having made all of those appointments and getting settled in. And this is what we read in verses 1 through 4. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. And Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. The spiritual renaissance that had come upon Jerusalem is completely hindered by the wickedness of the people. And Ezra is appalled. And this is the first of two things that I want us to meditate on this morning. First, the reality that the sin of God's people is appalling. And when Ezra heard of the intermarriages of the people with the pagans of the land, he was shocked. He was horrified. He probably thought immediately of Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
1 to 4, which said this to the people of Israel, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And this was not the only place written in the law where intermarriage with the pagans of the land was strictly forbidden. Now, the forbidding of intermarriage with the other peoples of the land was not a racial issue. It was a matter of worship. Marriage to non-Hebrews who worshiped false gods would corrupt the people of God and turn them away from Yahweh. In their history, they had already seen this happen by example, even in members of the royal class. King Solomon was brought low by his marriage to pagan wives. King Ahab, who was an evil king, was pushed even further into wickedness than he would have gone by himself by his Moabite wife Jezebel. Marrying an unbeliever can wreck you. It may even draw you yourself into unbelief and idolatry and bring the wrath of God upon you. So the prohibition against marrying pagans is a protection for God's people. It was then, just as it is now, as we read in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So picture Ezra, whose heart is for the Lord. His heart is to bring the people under the rule of Yahweh and cause them to flourish as God had promised they would if they would obey his laws. And then he finds out that the people, and in particular the leaders of the people, are living in direct contradiction to what God's word has said. Verse 3 says that he tore his garment and his cloak. This was a common sign of grief and mourning in that culture. If you remember the story of Job when he lost his 10 children and all his livestock and everything that he had, he did the same. He tore his robe and he shaved his head. Shaving your head was also a common display of mourning in the culture. But pulling your hair and your beard out like Ezra did was highly unusual. But it gives us a sense of Ezra's emotional state as he hears this news. He was furiously angry, frustrated, and sorrowful. Ezra loved the Lord, and he loved the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord explicitly forbade marriage with pagans of the land. So Ezra was rightfully appalled at the sin of God's people. And everyone among them who cherished God's word came to Ezra and mourned along with him. Those who love God and who love God's word are appalled by sin. So I want you to take a moment just to examine your own heart and think, what is your emotional response to sin? How do you feel 
about your own sin. Now, all sin is evil and wicked, and we should hate it in every form in which it occurs. But the sin of those who are called God's people is the most heinous. It is the most offensive. With all that God has done for you, heaped grace upon you, shown you unmerited favor beyond your wildest dreams, given you freely the promise of life through faith in Jesus Christ, why would you still persist in the very things that God hates? It's like spitting in the face of someone who's nursing your wounds. It's treating God's grace as meaningless. And God's grace toward his people in this book of Ezra is a very dominant theme which creates a backdrop of light in order to highlight the darkness of Israel's sin. In the decree of Cyrus, chapter 1 of Ezra, we see that it is the Lord who stirred Cyrus's heart to release the people and give them favor. And still in chapter 1, we see it was God who stirred the people to return to Jerusalem and build the temple. It was the Lord who gave his word to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah who came and encouraged the people while they built. When the building of the temple was opposed, the book of Ezra tells us that the people were not stopped because God's eye was on the elders of the Jews. We see that it was by God's decree in chapter 6 that they were able to finish the temple. And it was God himself who raised Ezra up to teach the people the law. Ezra found favor with this pagan king because God's hand was on Ezra. So all of these abounding graces of God that have been given to Israel across their history and even in the midst of this book just makes the sin of Israel that much more appalling. God proclaims and displays his love. He teaches them the way of life by his commands, and yet they pay him no mind, and they do whatever is right in his own eyes. And this inevitably leads to their shame and to their discipline. And if they persist in it, it will lead to their destruction. And this has not changed in our day. The situation is the same. The abounding grace of God makes the sin of those who are called Christians most horrific and offensive. It will lead to our shame. It will lead to discipline. And if we persist in sin, it will lead to our destruction. I'm sure at some point you have probably felt the shame of sin. You fall and you think, I'm, I'm supposed to be a Christian. This is terrible. Your heart burns within you. You feel, you feel sick. Sometimes you might even begin to question your salvation because you know how inappropriate it is for one who says that they love God to deliberately disobey what he said to you. And the shame is compounded because even unbelievers know that Christians are supposed to hold themselves to a higher moral standard. And when we don't, it puts this big, nasty smear across the testimony to the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and may actually serve to harden people in their unbelief. So sins in God's people certainly leads to shame, 
and it leads to discipline. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every son who he receives. God's people will suffer consequences for their sin. Whatever the Lord may appoint, whether it be sickness or pain or emotional disturbance or some other kind of loss. But this affliction brought upon you by your father is meant to bring you to repentance and to shape you into the image of Christ. The exercise of discipline that Christ commands to his church serves the same purpose, calling those who are in sin to repentance and ultimately putting them out of the church if they refuse to submit to the word of the Lord. And the expectation is that in this pain of excommunication, a child of God will feel the full weight of their sin and be brought to repentance, be brought to restoration, come back yearning for the mercy of God and the fellowship of the people. This is like Israel. When they persisted in sin and idolatry, God exiled them out of their country. But it wasn't because God hated them. It was because he wanted that pain and that destruction to bring them to repentance, that they would come back to him. But that's not how things are progressing in Ezra. The people are still persisting in sin. And if those who are called God's people persist in sin, it will lead to their destruction. We hear a warning of this nature in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 29. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who claim to be God's people, those who have lived among the preaching of the word and participated in the fellowship and the gathering, but persist in sin and reject the Lord, prove themselves to be standing outside of God's grace. Enemies of God prepared for the eternal fire. To whom much is given, much is required. You have been given God's word. You have been given God's promises. You must not persist in sin. You must hate sin with all of your being. As a temptation, or one temptation that exists, is that when you know that your sins are forgiven, you kind of minimize sin. You don't think that your sin is as bad. When you know that you're not going to suffer the full consequence of eternal damnation because of sin, you begin to think that sin is not as bad or your sin is not as bad. And the sin of the unbelievers is horrendous, but I'm, I'm forgiven, so I don't have to think too hard about my sin. But I'm telling you that your sin is really bad. The sin of God's people is worse than the sin of unbelievers. 
It's worse for you to know the Lord and to persist in sin than to live in sin and have never known God. It's God's grace that gives you life. So if you don't know the Lord, it's not like you're off the hook. The sin of unbelievers also flies in the face of God's grace. It's him that keeps breath in the lungs of every living person. He made the world that we live in and everyone on it that we cherish. Everything good that you have has come by his grace in spite of your sin. Yet as you live in unbelief, you choose not to acknowledge your God. You won't listen to his word. You make yourself the determiner of what is right and wrong and have forsaken your master. Now the sins of unbelievers will not lead to discipline, only raw consequence and destruction. And at death, when you stand in your unbelief before your creator for judgment, you will bear the full weight of your disobedience. But still today, he holds out his hand to you. He extends his grace. While you live, you may yet repent of sin and turn to the Lord Jesus and find forgiveness with him. The living and true God gave the ultimate grace in sending his son, Jesus Christ, the sinless one who died on a cross to bear your guilt and your shame. If you repent and believe in him, you will be absolved of sin. You will be forgiven your rebellion against God. You may turn today from your sin and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. This is the saving grace that the Lord extends to all who will hear it. Will you hear and repent this morning? While you consider that, I'll move on now to the second meditation with the saints. One thing that we know is that breaking any of God's commands in light of his supremacy as creator and his perfect righteousness makes us liable to judgment. That's what the apostle James meant when he said, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Though you may know this already, to the glory of God, I want to give a thorough review of this fact, that your sins and my sins are worthy of punishment in hell. God's people are guilty and deserve destruction. Listen with me as I read Ezra chapter 9, verse 5 to 14. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves." 
Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So our first section of thought highlighted the nature and the quality of the sin of Israel and God's people. The second section is to highlight the consequences of sin, which are discipline, shame, and destruction. We heard discipline and shame in verse 7. The exile was supposed to bring them to repentance, and they were handed over to plundering because of their disobedience. And yet God showed them grace. He showed them favor, favor that they did not merit by their own hands. And he preserved them a remnant and brought them back to Jerusalem, to the holy place. He granted them a a second chance of sorts. And after receiving such grace, what did they do? They intermarried with pagans, just as God's law forbid them to do. And so Ezra is amazed at the audacity of his own people in the face of God's grace. And he knows that such deeds must be judged and punished. Would you not be angry with us, Lord, till you consumed us? This is a rhetorical question. He knows that they are at the point where they have warranted by their own deeds their complete destruction according to the law of God. Do you recognize today that apart from Christ, that is where you stand When Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, it means dead. It means apart from Christ, there is no life in you. There is nothing that you have to bring before God. When Romans 3 says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that means this cliff that is salvation. Without Christ, we can't even get a grip. We've fallen way short. That is, each and every one of us are falling into the pit apart from Christ. When Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death, that means that the guaranteed paycheck for any sin or any number of sins is the loss of life, is complete destruction. And by your sin, that is what you have earned for yourself. Can you accept that? Can you confess that? Well, you should. You should. 
such an acceptance of this fact and a confession of this fact is the proper position of a person who has received God's word and taken it in as truth. Such a one as Ezra. He states openly God's truth and confesses guilt. The people of God are guilty and deserving of destruction. It was true in Ezra's time, and it's true for us today. But I say this to you today, not for your sorrow, but for your joy. For the Lord's word says that if we repent and receive Jesus Christ, we will be washed clean from the stain of every one of our sins. It says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want you to come to a place of complete and open confession so that you can receive the full glory of grace that is available to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Model your confession after Ezra's. He doesn't pull any punches. He highlights the depth of the sin of the people. He recognizes the due consequence, and he describes with precision the command of God that they have violated. He doesn't minimize the sin. He doesn't say, well, some of these pagan ladies are really nice girls, and, and maybe we could convert them to Judaism. He doesn't say, well, I know these men married pagans, Lord, but at least they treat their pagan wives better than some of these Jews treat their Jewish wives. He doesn't make any excuses. He simply says, Lord, we are guilty. Is that how you handle your sin? Do you say before the Lord, I am guilty. I deserve your wrath. As a side note, that mindset is where humility starts. It's where it begins. If you find yourself at all struggling with pride, what you need to recognize and acknowledge is that you are guilty before God and that you are worthy of destruction. Pride is manifested when a sinner thinks that they have an advantage over another sinner in the eyes of the Lord. Sinners hating on other sinners because they're sinning. Do you not recognize that both you and they are condemned criminals on death row apart from Jesus Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without Jesus, you would have nothing but the wrath of God hanging over your head. You don't have the position by any means to let your wrath hang over anyone else's head. So the next time that you are tempted to attack someone because they have offended you, or to lash out at someone in anger because they failed in an area that God has given you victory, you must remember that you, just like them, are guilty and deserving of punishment. God has given you the grace not to immediately strike you down for your disobedience and has extended to you freely, no merit of your own, the gift that is in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. When you set your mind on that, your position and the grace of God, then you will find in yourself a place of patience and compassion 
for all sinners who, just like you, stumble in many ways. And then, rather than unleashing your wrath upon them, you will serve them with the gospel, just like God did for you. So back on track, we were noting the open nature of Ezra's confession. I also want to highlight the corporate nature of Ezra's confession. Every statement that he makes is we. We have been in great guilt from the days of our forefathers. We have forsaken your commandments. We are before you in our guilt. He doesn't say those Israelites that married pagan women are deserving of destruction. At least I don't have a pagan wife. Lord, please bless me for my obedience. I think Ezra has two important things that are controlling his thoughts as he makes this statement. One, he understands that he himself is not without sin. And two, that the people of God exist as a corporate unity. When God instituted the covenant on Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with a people for himself. He didn't make an individual deal with every person separately. When God punished the sins of Israel in the Babylonian exile, everybody suffered, even those who were faithful to Yahweh and who looked to his word. And they received that punishment because the whole group as a whole was corrupt. The sin of God's people is a corporate matter. Now, we live in a highly individualistic society. We are raised to think through the lens of self rather than the lens of the group. And this, this has really disfigured us as image bearer of God in a number of ways. One of those ways that we'll focus on today is having a substandard understanding of sin and its effects. Sins are perpetrated by individuals, and every individual will be judged for their own sin and not the sin of others. But yet sin remains a corporate matter because sin in any of the members affects the entire body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If one member suffers, all members suffer together. When you have pain, even in the smallest member of your body, like a deep hangnail or a splinter in a pinky toe, it affects the whole body. If you have an infection or cancer in the smallest individual part of your body, the danger is that it will spread and affect the rest of your body. The sin problem of any member of the church is a sin problem for the entire church. Your sin problem is a problem for the entire body. Do you think about sin that way? Or do you think that your sin is only a private issue between you and God alone? Are you hiding sin, thinking that as long as nobody knows about it, it's okay? It's not okay. Your sin is killing you spiritually. And as you hide it, not only is it doing damage to you, but it's also doing damage to everyone with whom you fellowship while you hold on to that sin. And only on the final day will the extent 
of the damage of the sin that you are hiding be revealed. But you can stop the spread of your malignancy with a decisive action of confession and repentance. Each one of us in the church by nature is a diseased organ. The church is not a group of righteous people with some sinners mixed in. The whole church is a group of weak, sinful people who by God's own mercy have been called to come and worship him and learn his ways and be cleansed by the Lord Jesus. But there's no reason or no worth in ourselves that God should have a care for us. The entire population of the world is a corrupted lump that is no good for anything but to be thrown out and burned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what then makes the church different from the world? It is the electing love of God himself and nothing else. That God chose to purify a remnant of this corrupted lump for his own possession, for his own pleasure, for his own glory. That free grace given to us is what makes us different from the world. This grace that has come to us, to that, the grace that was promised to God's people was spoken through the prophet Ezekiel. I'm open to chapter 36 and just read verse 24 to 27. The Lord says to his people, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." The re-entry of Israel into Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple looked like the fulfillment of these promises coming to pass. And in a sense, they were the very beginning of this fulfillment. But we know from the Bible that after the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, the people of Israel would continue to fall back into deep and grievous sin. And they would perpetuate a false form of religion devoid of the true spirit of God that persists to this day. The, God, the promise that God made through the prophet Ezekiel would not find its full fulfillment until the perfect image of God was made manifest in Jesus Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah. He is the cleansing agent for the stains of the guilt of God's people. He bore the shame due to his people hanging naked on a cross. He took the sins of God's people on himself and was destroyed by the wrath of God in their place. And that bloodshed washes the people clean. That sacrifice makes them holy and prepares them as a dwelling place for God, a true temple. And in his resurrection from death, he gave his Holy Spirit to his people, causing them to be born again, giving them new hearts. He put in them both the desire and the ability to obey his commands. The spirit of Christ is what distinguishes God's people from the world. 
The Spirit of Christ is what makes the true people of God different from those who call themselves the people of God but persist in disobedience to God's commands. And yet even the true people of God are not without sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So for the greater glory of God, we must consider the two main points of Ezra 9. The sin of God's people is appalling. And God's people are guilty and deserving of destruction. And in light of these realities, when those things have sunk into us, there are three things that we should do immediately. Confess, repent, and rejoice. Now, we've already seen confession modeled by Ezra and had some discussion of what that looks like, so I won't belabor that point, only to say once more that you must acknowledge daily that you are a sinner deserving of condemnation. This will cause you every day to abound with thanksgiving before God that he has not paid that wage out to you. And maybe you do acknowledge your sinfulness generally. But I heard a brother say recently that it's important that we acknowledge and confess specific sins. And, and I found this very helpful. To simply say, yeah, I know that I'm a sinner, leaves it vague and gray. But confessing and repenting of specific sins on a daily basis will more deeply impress our depravity upon our hearts and reveal to us a very clear and well-lit road to repentance. But confession of sin is not the end of our duty, nor does it, nor does it complete our appeal for salvation. We must repent. Repentance is not only admitting our sin, but turning away from it and seeking by the Spirit of God to put it to death. Ezra didn't stop at confession saying simply, we are guilty. He made an effort to move forward and to turn Israel from that disobedience. If you look for yourself at Ezra chapter 10, you'll see that what they come up with is a plan to divorce these wives. We have done wrong. We have married pagan wives. We recognize our guilt before the Lord. So now what we're going to do, we're going to divorce these pagan wives and put them away and, and attempt to walk forward in faithfulness to God. Whether or not a mass divorce of women was the most righteous response is something that people wrestle with as they look at this text. And I've wrestled it with it myself, and I can't give you a clear answer or whether that was the best thing to do. But the concept of radical repentance is excellent that we see here. Turning away from the evil that you have done, seeking to right what you have done wrong. For unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And still, a one-time act of repentance is not enough. The people of Israel, even after this massive turning away from the marrying of pagan women in this moment, years later fall back into the same pattern of sin. It becomes a problem again, as we see in other books. True repentance from sin lasts. It persists. It fights temptation, and it continues to turn away from evil. 
But what is even more important than what you turn from is who you turn to. Because it's not your repentance that finally saves you. It's not enough just to feel sorry for your sins and to try to stop doing them. You still need your guilt before God to be wiped away. You need to be cleared. Your sins are appalling. You are guilty before God. You deserve destruction. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you receive his sacrifice on your behalf, then your sins will be washed away. You will be dressed in righteousness. You will be saved from the wrath of God. And when you stand before God for judgment, he's not going to look at your record of guilt. He's going to look at the righteousness of his son to whom he has connected you forever. So your recognition of your own abject sinfulness is like a black backdrop for the strobe lights of Jesus' love and mercy that has come to you. When you recognize how guilty and sinful you really are, the glory and the love of God will shine that much brighter in your heart. You had nothing. You were nothing. You were dead. You were without God and without hope in the world. But God, who was in his mercy, the God who you grievously offended, extended his hand to you in grace. He called you to be his child. He sacrificed his only begotten son for you. And through faith, you now have the imperishable, irrevocable, incorruptible hope of everlasting life in the presence of God with fullness of joy forever. Knowing God's grace to us in spite of our guilt should stoke in us a burning blessedness that does not fade. That's what the apostle was talking about when he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's give thanks. Father, what a joy it is to think about the grace that you have given to us, to think about the love that you displayed for us, that you proved your love for us by sending your Son, that in him we might have eternal life. It grieves our heart to think about the sins that we have committed against you. It grieves our heart to think that we must still daily struggle with sin. How we long to be perfected. How we long to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. So we call upon you in our weakness, Lord, to, to make us mature in Christ. To help us put to death the sin that remains in our flesh. That you would be glorified, that our testimony to you would be filled with grace and love and good works, works that you have prepared for us beforehand 
So, Father, we give ourselves to you this day. Please forgive us for our many sins and cause us to rejoice all the more in your Son. Amen.